everybody. Eve Harrow, Director of Tourism and Community Development for Win Israel Fund. Very excited to have this evening's webinar. This evening, of course, being July 27th, 2022, the 28th day of Tammuz. 5782, at least it is in Israel because it is past dark. We are deep into the summer months, the hot summer months, and of course deep into the three weeks that commemorate, uh, well, the tough times that the Jews have had. You would think we would need more than three weeks for that, but we, we limit it to three weeks in general, and then uh, we do a lot of educating and a lot of a lot of uh, learning during these three weeks since we can't have weddings and other things like that. So One Israel Fund is very excited to be a part of that process to continue the series that we've been doing pretty much since the beginning of the COVID pandemic, we're working now on two and a half years of having some of the real influential people and the people who make us think come on our show and share with us their ideas and really get us to expand our minds and learn a lot. may not agree, but it's really super important to learn. And that's what we're all about. Of course, for those of you who are familiar, and this is not your first time, When Israel Fund is the premier organization that is supporting and securing the people living in Judea and Samaria. And of course, the people who used to live in the Gaza Strips coming up on 17 years uh, since the expulsion from Gush Katif, just again, at the end of this three-week period. Um, we're busy doing that. We have been do- busy doing that even during COVID. And of course, now we have started with our day trips again. We had a wonderful one to Itamar in July. And there are two more. The announcements are about to be sent out. The flyers have all been printed up. On August 24th, pretty much a wine trip to Gush Etzion, starting off in Herodian before you drink the wine. And then, excuse me, August 24th. And then on August 29th, a trip to Mount Grizim, Har Bracha, starting off with really an in-depth study of the Shomronim, of the Samaritans going into the National Park and learning all about them, and then some wine, and then some more wine, and making our way through the Shomron. So um, the places are limited on those bus trips, so when you get the, the flyers, I suggest that you register as soon as you can. Anyway, on to tonight's programming. I am delighted to have with us somebody who... Um, well, according to the genetic testing that we did, is like my fifth cousin. But so the two of us are, I don't know, I don't think we're in the shallow end of the gene pool, but we do our best. But Dan Diker is a fellow and senior project director at the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs, where he heads the program to counter political warfare and BDS. He has authored and ed- edited books on the global BDS movement and much, much more. He's also a research fellow at the International Institute for Counterterrorism and previously served as secretary general of the World Jewish Congress. He earned a BA in history from Harvard University, an MA in government and counterterrorism policy from Reichman University in Israel, and is currently in his spare time completing his PhD dissertation on the Palestinian National Movement at the University of South Wales at Cardiff, UK. He and his wife, Ofra, raised five children in Efrat. I've known him for many years. He's a great guy. And prepare your questions because we are about to learn a lot. Dan, thank you so much. Welcome to the Win Israel Fun webinar. Hey, how are you, cuz? <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Whatever. We'll figure it out one day. Nobody's admitting that they're related to us, so I think that's a little concerning. Whatever. Anyway, tell us. Yeah. No, Go I'm ahead. just saying, having known you for 32 years uh, and having been a big fan of yours in, in fighting oh. for the rights fighting for the rights of the Jewish people uh, in, uh, in the state of Israel, Judea and Samaria, and uh, what was, uh, uh, you know, and what was uh, uh, under our dominion, our uh, de facto sovereignty, which was uh, Jewish areas in Gaza until we retreated in, in 2005. Um, you know, and so, Eve, one of the things that has really um, 
I think sparked a lot of interest uh, in my in my research and has been less uh, or, le or or sort of less attended to has been the ideological and political profile structure strategy um, of the of our adversaries uh, of the Palestinian leadership. People talk about you know what they called now has been branded as the two state solution. President Biden here, uh, my former classmate Tony Blinken here. Everybody talking so confidently about the two-state solution, uh, and uh, which in fact was never a product of Oslo, was never a product of any uh, particular diplomatic process with the Palestinians. It just sort of morphed. Um, it morphed out of uh, out of nothing, and uh, in and it and it collides with the political and ideological uh, structures of of the Palestinian leadership. That's what's so extraordinary. I just came now uh, uh, 10 minutes ago from a conversation with somebody that I think everybody in this call knows, Colonel Richard Kemp, sure. who, you know, the former, uh, the, the uh, uh, Brits, uh, former senior uh, commander in Afghanistan. And he had just written um, a real uh, pathbreaking piece for the Gatestone Institute um, on the uh, Soviet-backed uh, PLO strategy over the last 50 years, which is exactly the, the kind of research that, that I've been doing. And he also scratched his head. He said he could simply cannot reconcile how anybody who has done any sort of basic intelligence or open source research on the Palestinian, on the Palestine Liberation Organization, the Fatah, the PA, and the Hamas, um, to, to even utter the words two-state solution, because for them, since the birth of the Palestine Liberation Organization, there's never been any such thing except the total liberation of what they call Palestine, which is, which, you know, if you go into any college campus today, 250 college campuses in the United States, they say, we can sing it together. From the river to the sea, yes, Palestine hey. will be free. But Dan, Dan, I, I think you actually answered your question by saying anyone with intelligence and anyone who's looked into it, because most people haven't done it. They see uh, an argument going on here, supposedly, between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And the easiest way of doing it, almost Solomonic, if you will, is to just divide it down the middle. And that's it. And you share. And whatever you're arguing about, one gets half, the other gets half. And the, hence this two-state solution. I, I think that most people don't really know what's going on here, do not know the underpinnings of the PLO, do not understand the significance of what you're going to teach us tonight, which is the very evil, I would say, uh, ideas behind this already for the last more than half a century. This is being driven. This isn't just happening. This isn't like some campus, you know, like human rights kind of a thing. This is much more insidious than that. And that's what I I think people don't know. But having said that, I'm going to have to say with sorrow that there are people who do know the truth and are still pushing this. And in that category, I would put enemies of Israel, because this is absolutely not the way to get to any kind of peaceful solution. It's the destruction of Israel. So there are some people who unfortunately do know what's going on and are pushing it. So tell us, what is your research doing? Yeah. So I just wanted to, to note here to, to um, our friends and family who are um, participating with us tonight, you said something, you said the key, you said the key phrase, which is, which is just split it down the middle and I'll take half, yeah. you take half. And then it's a win-win situation, you know, that's like right out of uh, Hollywood Central, you know, that's an, as Americana as apple pie and Chevrolet. The problem is, and this is what many people just don't know, Israel is in a conceptually in a territorial conflict, Israel. Whether you're on the left, the center, the right, Israel, Israel's frame of reference is territory territorial dispute. 
the Palestinian frame of reference is not territory at all. It is, um, it is what they called in 1964 in the, with the issuance of the first Russian generated Palestinian charter, which was written by, directed by, funded by um, the Moscow at the behest of Nasser using Ahmad Shukeri, the first Palestinian, Palestine Liberation Organization chairman. And then subsequently the amended charter in 1968 uh, and then Arafat was then appointed essentially um, by um, uh, you know, the Palestinian Legislative Council, but he was really appointed by the Russians um, to become in February of 69, the next chairman. And their watchword was always the total liberation of Palestine, meaning for them, there was never an issue of it being a territorial conflict. It was an existential conflict from then, and it remains an existential, an existential uh, conflict today. And this is why the title of what we wanted to chat about tonight is called Hybrid Warfare, the PA strategy of hybrid warfare uh, between uh, the Soviet Union, the, uh, the West and BDS. Okay, so a moment of context. My, one of my uh, great teachers, Professor Bernard Lewis, who's um, um, who, one of whose great students I think is on the call tonight, uh, Dr. Harold Rode is a friend of both of ours. Um, has always we've guessed him, yeah. He's always, he just finished another Zoom at seven. I, and perhaps he'll join us, either join us now or join us a couple of minutes, but he's always stressed as a major expert in Middle East, affair, Near East affairs, Islam, um, and, the, uh, the, and the Near East in general is context. We're, we're missing context. And when we talk about hybrid warfare, that's a term that has been bandied about um, with in, in many different dimensions when it comes to warfare. It's very important that we understand what are we talking about here in this conversation when we use the word hybrid warfare. There are really two schools of thought on hybrid warfare without getting into the weeds. We don't wanna get into the details. We wanna, we wanna stay at 20,000 feet deep. The first concept was, uh, was really introduced into the modern literature by, um, by uh, Frank Hoffman, who was a military theorist in, in 2008, he sort of revived this concept of hybrid warfare in the Western uh, military um, context, which means, which means conventional and irregular forces fighting each other in an asymmetrical way in the same military battlefield. So think Hezbollah and Israel in the second Lebanon war. That's a perfect example of, of Frank Hoffman's concept of hybrid warfare, where you have the Hezbollah acting as a terror group and as a conventional army simultaneously with right. both sorts of weapons. And then you have Israel as a conventional army forced to fight a guerrilla warfare with guerrilla tactics, as well as using conventional formations at the same time. That's one concept. Then there's the Russian concept of hybrid warfare, which is called in the Russian literature it means, it really means um, a people's war. It's a political war. It's, an, it's, it's, it's what has been referred to by scholar Offer Fridman, who wrote a wonderful book called Hybrid Warfare. It's really a societal war, which takes Chinese strategy and Soviet strategy and now modern Russian strategy that focuses on attacking dividing and conquering the enemy's population, demoralizing them, confusing them, confounding them, dividing them, and causing 
a split, an ongoing argument in the target population. Now, just think Israel for a second since 1993, how much division there has been over the Palestinian issue on the domestic scene, right? Uh, for, the first, uh, for the first 10 years, if you were a pro-Oslo person, you were in favor of massive land concessions in Judea and Samaria and Gaza, and, and potentially in the Golan Heights with the Syrians in the context of having made major concessions in, in Sinai with the Egyptians that brought a treaty of peace with the Egyptians. But, but so just think about uh, that type of hybrid strategy um, that's based on disinformation, deception, um, economic, diplomatic warfare, psychological operations, information operations. These, it's called omnidimensional warfare. Any kind of weapon that you can get your hands on, you can meaning you can send Israel, the Palestinian Authority now as a uh, as a non-state member, uh, amazingly um, sends a complaint to the International Criminal Court accusing Israel of genocide and crimes against humanity without without any basis, and but actually convinces the court to begin to uh, investigate Israel as a war criminal. That's one form of uh, that's one form of assault. Then there's the International Court of Justice, which everybody in this call remembers what happened in 2004, where the counterterrorism wall becomes an apartheid wall. The whole concept of uh, of um, the whole concept of using any form of psychological, diplomatic, economic, uh, cultural warfare to fight the enemy is 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 what they do. What I'd like to do, just for fun, to to make this point is to stress that this was learned by the Pal Palestine Liberation Organization at the hands of their, of their Soviet mentors since the 1960s. Now, in 1965, um, I'm old enough to say that I remember a comedy show, a parody called Get Smart on American mm -hmm. television. Do you remember that from 1965 yes. to 1970? I'm much younger was, than you are, but I do remember, yes. <laughs> I, I assume so, I assume so. So that program was produced at really um, as, the, as the Cold War was really moving into very high gear. And it was, um, and I have a, a little clip to show you three Hollywood Jews, Mel Brooks, by the way, put it together. And it was a spoof, a parody of the, a, a, a um, series of the absurd to show um, how ridiculous the Cold War was, but also how also delegitimizing, also delegitimizing American society through Hollywood's understanding of, of, of the spoof, making fun of the Soviets and making fun of the United States at the same time. So let me just show you exactly the, the type of uh, the type of spoof that we're talking about, that the, that the Russians, the Russians actually had the last laugh on this um, because of the fact that they can. They, that they can they convinced um, through our very own Hollywood. They used our very own Hollywood to further their own aims. Yeah, yes, they used our they used our very own Hollywood um, in order to uh, in order to advance. So I, I mean, I have a question for you, and it may it may be a very simplistic question. When I guide Independence Hall, one of the things that I tell people truthfully is that on November 29, nineteen forty seven, the Soviet Union voted for the creation of the state of Israel. 
They voted for the partition plan. And the answer to that, when people say to me, really, but they're such an enemy now, is that we had a communist party here until not too many years ago, they celebrated May Day in Israel, and that they were hoping that this would be a bastion of communism in the Middle East, the kibbutzim, were, you know, giving them some hope. In the end, that didn't happen. Is that the explanation for why, you know, I understand why the Arabs are our enemies, but what, what you're saying now is that it has been aided and fomented and funded and advised in great part by the Soviet Union. Why? Like, what did, what did Israel do to them that would make them a player here and try and undermine this country? In the years following Israel's reestablishment in May of 1948, the Russians thought, or the Soviets thought that by voting in favor of the establishment of the state of Israel, that they would be able to foil British uh, control French. and influence mm-hmm. in the re- and French in the region. And of course, they referred to them as the as the colonialists and the imperialists, right, of the mid 20th century. Well, very quickly they found that the Communist Party in Israel was not enough. Um, to turn back or damper Israel's nationalist sense that Zionism was very much an expression of of Jewish self-determination, of Jewish nationalism. And what ended up happening, especially after the 1967 Six-Day War, when Israel, in a punishing defeat in six days, um, defeated uh, the the Soviet Union's main client states in in the Middle East. So so basically, it's it's really after 67 that this all... This all gets very serious. We lost you, Dan. We lost your face. There you go. Yeah. By the way, I just hope that that the listeners noted that when you mentioned 1964 is, of course, the first PLO charter. That's before Judea and Samaria is in Israel's hands. So when they're talking about liberating Palestine, it's not from Israel. Two contextual points just to pick up where we were. Number one, in 1964, many people uh, uh, do not realize that the first chart of 1964, when they talk about Palestine, right, in the 64 charter, they did not include Judea and Samaria and Gaza, because, which, which proves the, the, the complete fraud of the whole concept of the liberation of Palestine, right? Why did they not include Judea and Samaria? They included only pre-67 Israel, because they, they were um, afraid of, of uh, colliding with Jordan that had unilaterally annexed um, in contradiction to international uh, uh, international custom and law, Judea and Samaria, and then Gaza was being administered by Egypt. So they didn't want to disturb two major players in the Arab League, right? So they did not, Dafka include, what an irony that they did not include (laughs) those two areas, but only included pre-67. And then in the second charter, the the, 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 the Soviets um, and Arafat made sure that they were talking about the entire area from the river to the sea. Uh, of course, that created great concern in Jordan, which is why Jordan has really sort of sort of become a frenemy um, of the PLO as opposed to an ally, as opposed to an ally of the PLO. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and then the second the second point of cons I wanted to make is what you just saw in Get Smart. You just saw a perfect expression of what we're talking about tonight is hybrid warfare. You talked about, as you noticed, Don Adams, Barbara Feldman, and uh, and Edward Platt, three demonstrable Hollywood Jewish comedians making fun, delegitimizing the Senate Investigative Committee, delegitimizing the American taxpayer, delegitimizing the entire uh, American civil society system. And who has the last laugh? Not Hollywood, but the Soviets, because it's exactly Mm -hmm. what hybrid warfare is, is making your adversary 
make your arguments about its own society. So what you and I, what we all were talking about 10 minutes, seven minutes ago about dividing and conquering a society through demoralizing, through delegitimizing, through even dehumanizing, um, uh, uh, and through defaming the society is this, that is what hybrid warfare is in the sense that we're discussing tonight, political warfare, societal warfare, and as the Chinese would say, a people's war. Um, and, and that is exactly what that parody was actually playing in service of what the Soviets were trying to do anyway to the United States and what they did together with the PLO against Israel. So back to your question. It's been going on for a long time. Been going on since the 1960s. Um, and the PLO became the vanguard of the whole international liberation movements, Algeria, Cuba, North Vietnam, um, uh, all of these Soviet satellite states, Nicaragua, um, Eritrea, on and on and on and goes. Um, but the PLO became the international rock stars, the Mick Jagger, if you will, um, of the international liberation movements. And all of it was done because the, 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 um, the, the Soviets wanted a language. They wanted a lingua franca that the West could relate to. So in order to delegitimize, defame, dehumanize, and isolate Israel as the nation state of the Jewish people, in the eyes of the international community, meaning the United Nations, they had to choose language that the West and the international community could relate to, okay? So even though the West did not agree with, with this ignominious uh, um, and infamous uh, UN General Assembly 3379, Zionism is racism, back in 1975, which is the basis of all of the BDS and apartheid assault today, was in that resolution um, in, you know, 45 years ago. Even though it was rescinded, doesn't matter. It was shelved. It was shelved. It was shelved um, in 1991 because the Soviet Union fell and, uh, and the, the, uh, Bush the first Bush administration was successful in coalescing, uh, in coalescing even Syria and other Arab countries against Saddam Hussein and Iraq the first time around right. in 1991. So that's why by the skin of our teeth, it was solved. But I'll remind all of us that Zionism is, is racism. UN General Assembly uh, uh, um, Resolution 3379 actually disemboweled the very idea underneath that, that uh, of, of Jewish self-determination. In other words, it was so, it was such an evil moment for the international community. It wasn't just a vote against Israel. It was a destruction of the founding idea of Jewish national self-determination, which stood on the books for 16 years. And essentially Arafat had stood on the podium of the UN one year before the General Assembly voted on this. And he basically said three words that if you now, right now, anyone on this call, go to Google and, and click on the BDS um, on the uh, BDS movement, and you'll see three words in the upper left corner. You'll see justice, equality, and peace. Guess what? Those were the three words that Arafat used in his speech in 1974, or those three words. So talk about the distortion, the distortion of language when it right. comes to hybrid warfare. So hybrid warfare says justice, equality, and peace, and they mean destroy the nation state of the Jewish people. Meaning the only way you get to justice, equality, and peace 
in the eyes of the PLO, in the eyes of Moscow, and in the eyes of hybrid warfare is by destroying the very Jewish state that the UN General Assembly voted in in 1949. Well, I mean, there's that, you know, uh, what they say is why Israel is never going to get ahead at the UN is because you have this alliance of the communist bloc and of the Africans and of the Arabs. And it's just so overwhelmingly against Israel that, you know, we're never going to get ahead there. Right now, we are at a watershed moment because of the Abraham Peace and Normalization Accords, Ah, as well as our great upgrade in our relations with African countries in East and West Africa, which which uh, former Prime Minister Netanyahu was was very much responsible for re-engaging uh, and re-embracing the African, uh, the, the ECOWAS countries, as well as the East African nations. The problem is that does not translate into votes at the UN. And that's that's a major problem. And you're very right. And, you know, the um, um, the the non-democratic, the majority of the UN are, non, are comprised of non-democratic countries. 109, of 193 members, 193 member states in the UN, something like 135 are not democratic. It's incredible. So this, this international body is, is two-thirds, more or less, countries that you wouldn't want to live in, where the people don't have free speech and, and the rights that we take for granted as Israelis, and most of our listeners, I assume, are also living in some kind of democratic country, the United States or England or whatever it is. And, you know, it's, it's almost like the countries, especially Israel and the United States, that are trying to be democratic are punished because we're doing the right thing, because we're not participating in the hybrid warfare. We're still... We feel that wars, if they have to be fought and we don't want to fight them, so we try and defend ourselves, should be conventional. They shouldn't be attacking hospitals and they shouldn't be marching children through minefields and they shouldn't be all these things that they get away with and win because they're fighting in such a horrible manner. It's, I mean, it's so incredibly depressing to think that this is the way that the world is running right now, that the people who are doing the awful things are the ones who are succeeding, like, like Putin in the Ukraine or just to give one topical example. I mean, what are you thinking about this? I mean, I think the, the bigger problem, when I see President Biden going to the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah, you know, you think about hybrid warfare and you think about, um, you know, currently in the Palestinian areas, there is a an, almost an unprecedented domestic um, upheaval going on to get Mahmoud Abbas thrown out um, as uh, the 18-year... Um, <laughs> chairman, he's not president, he's chairman, he's Ra'is, which translates into chairman, not president, um, of the Palestinian Authority. And here's a guy, uh, you know, who who murdered, whose who's, who's security forces murdered uh, a many human rights workers, but a human rights activist um, um, just a couple of months ago in June. And in fact, I received a phone call just yesterday from someone at a British newspaper who said that he has the names of the 14 uh, members of the, um, the security forces who killed this particular person. So you should be really? looking for a story to come out. But you know, the point is when you legitimize, when the president of the United States legitimizes a, a Palestinian authority that is jihadi supporting, um, that is, uh, you know, that incentivizes terror by paying annuities to girls and boys who murder Jews um, in the name of jihad. And this is not social security payments. It's a totally different line item 
and and uh, Sandra Gerber uh, from the United States has been absolutely essential in in uh, in carrying this entire issue forward in the U.S. Congress. He got the Taylor Force Act uh, very much. The pay to slay, right? The pay to slay, right. money for murder, pay to mm -hmm. slay. But this is not, as some left wing groups say, um, Social Security, the likes of which, um, you know, uh, uh, the um, apparent killer of, uh, of Yitzhak Rabin, uh, Amir, receives in prison. This is not that payment. These are specific terror annuities um, uh, that, are, that are paid to these, um, uh, to these uh, terrorists. There's even worse things going on. You know, how do we understand in terms of hybrid warfare the type of anti-Semitic conspiracy theory um, discourse that's been going on since the 1960s. Let me just give you a few ex moderate examples. On July 4th, Indep American Independence Day, in the Palestinian areas, Prime Minister Mohammed Shtaya gets up um, in the Palestinian uh, government and accuses Israel of conducting experiments on Palestinians, on Palestinians killed in terror activities against the IDF. In, in 2022, you know, everyone here knows about the, uh, the Abu Akha conspiracy, meaning the Palestinian Authority immediately accused Israel of murdering this Al Jazeera reporter who had lived, uh, you know, in Israel for 25 years, but without any evidence, without any, just immediately accusing context. Israel of murder. Right. Context, no context, no facts, no anything. How do we, uh, how do we, um, how do we handle what Shia, Prime Minister Shia said in 2021 when he accused Israel of embodying the, the Khazar myth, that the Jews are not really the Jews. The Jews come from this Khazar tribe. How do we, how do we make sense of Shia accusing the IDF in 2020 when we all had mass on of infecting Palestinians with corona when we were sending you know, millions of shekels to the Palestinian Authority in order um, to vaccinate, to help them vaccinate um, their population and put them in Israeli hospitals? How do we make sense of the Hamas's great march of return when they send tens of thousands of youngsters to the fence in Gaza, paying them hundreds of dollars to get wounded and thousands of dollars if they get killed, um, you know, with Gandhi, Martin Luther King and Mother Teresa in the background in a poster, right? This is all political warfare. How, how do we understand, you remember when Suha Arafat stood next to Hillary Clinton back oh, yeah. in 2005, accusing the IDF of using poison gas and causing cancer? in women and children. This is all anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. And this started with the Russia, this started with Moscow. Um, wow. As uh, you know, back in the 19, back in the 1960s, especially the 1970s, when, uh, you know, th there is a very rich literature of, of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories as Isabella Tabarovsky shows us in her phenomenal uh, analyses about the, the, um, the Soviet's use of Nazi themes, uh, as well as the protocols of the elders of Zion, um, you know, the, the Russian forgery that became, that became the standard anti-Semitic content um, um, for the Muslim Brotherhood that was founded in 1928 and for Arab uh, states, as well as the, the Palestinians. The Palestinians today, one of the most popular um, uh, pieces of content are the Protocols of the Elders of Zion in Arabic today, circulating today uh, with reckless abandon. And that can be traced all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century. And it, and it was used very much and forwarded by what were called the Zionologists in the Soviet Union, the Zionologists. These were right-wing, ultra-right-wing Soviets, um, many of whom came out against the Soviet Union for their own 
for their own nationalist purposes, but they were the ones that were promoting um, you know, uh, Jews as dominating international markets, Jews as wanting to dominate the world, just like in the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. So we have this tradition of anti-Semitic conspiracy theory discourse that continues until this very day. So how, how is it that the president of the United States is going to go visit this authority, fully legitimizing pay for slay, money for murder, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, incitement to murder, uh, and, you know, and, uh, and on and on it goes. It's a big, big problem. Um, and, and again, unfortunately, the West has bought into this hybrid warfare. And that is why, you know, when they, when they use words like two-state solution, when they lose words like, you know, liberating Palestine and, and giving the Palestinian people its rights, they don't mean justice, equality, and peace. They mean destroy the nation state of the Jewish people. That's their discourse. But they use it. They they use the language that you and I and everyone on this call identifies with, so that people right. become confused. And that was the essence of the Soviet and Chinese strategies. Look, one of the things I think that we've seen for many years is that what starts in Israel never ends in Israel. If it's hijacking of airplanes, and now of course everybody in the world can't just run and get on a plane, and that that started here. Um, you know, with with interfering with how people travel and it goes everywhere. So what you're saying, though, is has gone to America. I mean, it's not just focused against Israel anymore. And that came up, of course, in the last election, the Russian involvement, perhaps. And I don't know if it's true or not. But when you see what's going on on campuses, also some of the ideas that have infiltrated American campuses already for the last generation come straight out of the Soviet Union. So you could say that the Soviet Union fell on paper and that the Cold War is over on paper, but maybe in the long term, they're actually the ones who are winning. And America, by ignoring or even aiding and abetting to some degree what hap- when it has to do with Israel and the Jews, is now going to suffer from it itself or is already in the thick of it? Well, what's your opinion on that? The, you're absolutely right. The United States is in the thick of it. I mean, the whole notion of, you know, Edward Said, who was a, uh, a Palestinian, uh, uh, a Palestinian intellectual at Columbia yeah. University, he created the whole literature of Orientalism, which basically saw um, the United States as, you know, a, a, a uh, an illegitimate colonial imperial um, implant that was incapable of understanding the Middle East because we were we were simply oppressors. Um, and and I and much of the United States uh, discourse on one side of the political aisle has really embodied um, that uh, that yeah. sense of, of of guilt. That's what critical race theory comes from. This notion of identity politics, um, uh, you know, that it's not it, there's no more objective truth. It's only how you feel. So you can create reality out of feeling as opposed to out of any you know sense of objective truth. And that's why now. Um, the BL, you know, after the after the killing of George Floyd, which was condemned by every Jewish organization um, from left to right, we saw an unprecedented spike in anti in violent anti-Semitic um, uh, assaults. With Israel in the middle, Israel was being accused of being complicit in the murder of George Floyd because, as the narrative went in the Black Lives Matter and the and the far left in the United States, Israel had. Uh, allegedly trained American police officers um, that were then oppressing black people so that Israel became a, a white supremacist country in affiliation with a systemically racist country, meaning the United States, in their view, 
that was oppressing black people. So Israel has been racialized in the American discourse. Um, and that is all, you know, that is all part of this critical theory and this critical race theory. So um, it, it, it creates a real, it, it creates a real difficulty um, for anti-Semitism because it really places Israel at the center of, or as the excuse um, for so many violent acts um, against, um, against Americans today. You know, I, I guided Yad Vashem a couple of times in the last few weeks, and it is frightening to go in there because so much of how that starts, for those of you who don't know Yad Vashem, of course, the Jerusalem-based memorial to the Holocaust. You walk into the first room and, you know, the whole humiliation, uh, the economic issues that Germany was going through because they hadn't recovered from World War I and how humiliated they felt and how angry they were and they were looking for a scapegoat and it was the Jews. Some of the Christian theological underpinnings of that. And then the next room, BDS. Right away. And you know, that's how it starts. Don't buy from the Jews. Don't patronize the Jews. It didn't start overnight with Auschwitz. It goes in a gradual way. And when you walk through there today, aware of what's happening in the world, it is frightening. Um, I mean, do you, do you think that, that that could possibly, you know, be, be what's going on here or that this can be stopped or that these, you know, people say, ah, BDS is not such a big deal. Look what happened with Ben and Jerry's. We fought back. We won. It's all good. And what's your feeling on that as an expert in BDS? And, and it, it's just like, it's just an economic weapon against Israel or it's something much deeper than that? No, it's, it's actually um, it's actually an expression of jihad against Israel. There are some there are two points that people are unaware of largely. Did you know, Eve, that um, there are four designated terror organizations, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, uh, the Hamas, um, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, which was a Marxist Leninist terror group that did a lot of the hijackings and skyjackings in the early 1970s. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and the Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine, GC, General, General Command, Ahmed Jabril. These are designated terror organizations by the U.S. State Department, as well as the European Union, and they sit on the BDS National Committee in Ramallah. So to <laughs> think that BDS is a, you know, is a peaceful grassroots economic um, you know, reminder of the Montgomery, Alabama bus boycott, that is exactly what hybrid warfare wants us to think. So they use the word boycott. But you know who reminded us that it's not that? The Germans. Because the German Bundestag in, in 2019 passed an unprecedented cross-party resolution condemning BDS as being demonstrably anti-Semitic and, hmm. and, and, and drawing our attention to the fact that it reminded them in the Bundestag of what was called the Juden boycott of the 1930s which led to, you know, one of the greatest um, tra- disasters in, in, you know, in human history. So the Germans know very well what it means and why it's, if it's anti-Semitic, they would be the ones to identify, which they did. Um, but unfortunately, via this notion of hybrid warfare, you know, justice, equality and peace and boycott, people think boycott, they think Montgomery bus uh, boycott by mm-hmm. Martin Luther King and and Abraham Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel and the Jews and blacks walking for racial justice in the South. And they think about the Spanish workers in California when they had the fruit and vegetable boycott um, in the early 1970s over unfair wages um, to Hispanic and migrant workers in the United States. That is what they want you to think. 
But when you really take a step back and understand that BDS is a jihadi affiliated a program that is dedicated to the destruction of, of, of Israel and that they're all affiliated with the Hamas, go on to any one of those 250 campuses and talk about two states for two people, talk about Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority. They don't know what you're talking about. They're talking about from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, meaning we will destroy the Jewish state. And they all support, I mean, look at, look at you know, who the, the terrorists that have visited these, these universities? Um, uh, uh, Leila Khalid, Leila. who was Leila Khalid, the famous right. Leila Khalid, who took place in, in two plane skyjackings and, and terror. And she served time in Israeli jails for, for, these terror, um, uh, for these terror actions. She shows up at the Students for Justice in Palestine annual events as a rock star. Okay, now she does it now by Zoom because the United States government under the former administration would not let her into the country. Um, but it's the, you know, it's the same thing. Um, it's the same thing with former PIJ, Palestinian Islamic Jihad um, operatives who also have been featured um, at these things. So, so you, they don't look at them as terrorists who have killed innocent right. people. They look at them as freedom fighters. And th- this is hybrid warfare. This is societal warfare to try to confound, confuse, divide, and split um, the United States population um, within itself over this issue they were using this Palestinian-Israeli issue as the as the vanguard, as the wedge issue. Still today, um, decades after the Soviets founded the PLO for their own international Cold War interests. So, but look, as Israelis, both of us living here, raising our families here, all in when it comes to Israel in every way, we've got our own issues with different organizations that are undermining what you know, you and I and many people feel is, is the right path, B'Tselem, and breaking the silence, which not only is ignoring the fact that our enemies are terrorists, but trying to make Israeli soldiers look like terrorists, like to, to completely flip the situation. It, is that innocent or is there also some of, is this part of the hybrid warfare being funded by sketchy people from the back? Like how, how does this fit in to what's happening on the global scale? Well, it depends. If we're talking about this relatively new phenomenon, which is disturbing of Jewish anti-Zionist organizations, such as the Jewish Voice for Peace, such as If Not Now. These are Jews who um, who are really opponents and adversaries of the collective Jewish community. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in large part, it's a question, it's not a question of ideological commitment. It's a question of ignorance and, and the allowing yourself to be willingly blind or to be kidnapped by these pyrotechnics of, of Israel perceived to be strong, the Palestinians perceived to be weak. Uh, and therefore, you, you know, the, the tendency is always to sort of to support the weaker side instinctively. Now, there's a, there's a nuance that we can bring up in, in a one Israel conversation that I think is missed, Eve, in the discourse. And that is that there are far left Zionists in Israel who believe that BDS is only a Zionist corrective to a bad policy, meaning these are people that go to the army. I'm not talking about um, I'm not talking about the organization that you that, uh, 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 breaking the silence. These these people, these are I mean, Richard Kemp, you know, had just mentioned the former um, senior British officer in Afghanistan brought up just now this evening 
you know, a, a, an ugly confrontation he had with breaking the silence, you know, understanding that these are people who are really um, in large part um, deep adversaries um, and people who are not truthful uh, regarding uh, uh, the IDF, which by the way, Colonel Kemp calls IDF the most moral army uh, in warfare that he has ever seen as a senior British officer. And he told that to the United Nations, as many people know, on this call. Um, but I will say there is something to, um, to a discourse in Israel among Zionists on the left who believe, truly believe, that the best thing for Israel would be a, uh, a pullback to somewhere close to the 1967 pre-war, the June 4th, 1967 lines. Now you and I know that the, besides the fact that Israel could never survive in those borders because they're not defensible, meaning it's only nine miles wide between, you know, Tulkaram and, and the Mediterranean Sea and any child with an, you know, with an SA-7 on her shoulders uh, could, could, you know, destroy a plane landing at Ben Gurion Airport or could hit Tel Aviv, but but those but those Israelis who are Zionists and they're patriots and they go to the army and they send their children to the army, some of them believe that BDS can be a positive force for forcing Israel to take a good policy decision. That by the way, the vast majority of Jewish Israelis reject uh, hook, line, and sinker because eighty-three percent of Jewish Israelis vote center right today. Um, as opposed to back in 1990, 91, where you had like 57% voting center left. I just wanted to make that one point because there is a nuance there and not everyone who is in favor in some way of BDS means to be anti-Zionist um, from an Israeli standpoint. Yeah, I was speaking to somebody, somebody I was guiding a couple of weeks ago for CPAC, and we were last week for CPAC. I mean, their concern in the United States is that the younger generation is getting this whole woke garbage and is becoming more liberal. And that, at least I think here in Israel, we have somewhat of the opposite, that it's the older generation that tends to be more on that side. And the younger generation, our kids who grew up you know, with intifadas and terrorism and going to more funerals by the time they were 15 than most people should go into an entire lifetime. They're, they they got it. Like they understand who the enemy is and they understand what the situation here is. So, you know, the younger generation here, and I think you're seeing that in the voting parties, it would be nice if we eventually saw that reflected in how the Knesset was laid out. Maybe the next election will finally be able to do that and have a 70 to 75 seat you know, conservative, if you will, or center-right government, which is really would be reflective of the Israeli population, and we haven't had that for a while. Um, but that the younger generation gets it, and they're the ones serving in the army now, and they're the ones who are seeing, you know, what the reality is. So it's a little bit, you know, it, it's not the same thing. And one of the other things I've been telling people is, is almost the first day that I'm with them is that Israel's not a, uh, black, a, not a white country. Because what you mentioned a few minutes ago, that idea that the worst thing you could possibly be now, what makes you a colonialist, is white, rich, Jewish, and male, all of which seems to fit Israel. And then, of course, the, black, the Palestinians become the blacks. And you don't have to think too much about Israel anymore. You got it. This, this is the situation. Now we can hate Israel like we hate America. Isn't true. It isn't true. Israel's not a white country. The majority of our population comes from the Middle East and from Africa or descendants of. And so we have to unpack that and they have to see the reality. The question is, what can we do?
I think a lot of our listeners now understand definitely better now after the last half an hour, but certainly we're pretty much on the ball even before we started this webinar about what the issues are. But there's a lot of concerns. Can we can we turn this back? I mean, American public opinion, and not just with the Democratic Party, seems to be increasingly turning against Israel. Sadly, it seems to be turning increasingly against America, but that's a whole different topic. What would you say, I mean, as somebody who has deeply, you know, studied this, has been deeply involved for decades, is the trajectory just one way here? Or is there anything that can be done short of, uh, I don't know, some catastrophic, you know, world war, which might also happen if Iran lets loose? That's another issue. Like, how are you seeing where we can somehow push back on this? We can definitely push back on this. I just wanted to mention one thing is that the one word we didn't talk about is the apartheid, the apartheid right. annihilationist assault. You talked about it now by by saying very rightly exactly. that the the majority of Israelis are brown and black. They're not they're not white. I mean, they're not Ashkenazic white people as you and I are. And, and they're not related to us. <laughs> Although our grandchildren, they will be by our grandchildren because we all have kids marrying, you know, and, and it's an amazing, beautiful thing. Yeah. And uh, I'm actually married to a to a woman of uh, Iraqi and Iranian descent. So our children are, are already what you call mixed Israelis. Right. But the, the point of the matter here in what is very dangerous is this uh, this and, and Prime Minister Lapid mentioned this back in February, uh, January, February of this year, that this is going to be the year of unprecedented ideological assault against Israel as an apartheid country. Now, most people that call Israel apartheid, they don't know what it means. They don't have they have no idea what the uh, South African apartheid regime of white of of government sanctioned white supremacy uh, meant. I mean, it is so absurd if you just scratch a little bit to understand. But at the same time, this is another this is the the grandmother or the grandfather or the climax of what we said in this Zoom in this Zoom conference of anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. The apartheid annihilationist assault is the apex of this anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that combines Nazi conspiracy theory, Islamist conspiracy theory, Soviet conspiracy theory, PLO conspiracy theory, all wrapped into one. And and uh, and that is and it's on all the college university campuses. It's in the U.N. It's in Congress. You hear members of Congress and uh, oh, yeah. one particular party using this type of language. And this is pure anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. And this has this must not be tolerated by anyone and has to be called out. So what I would say what we can do are several things. Number one, um, expose and educate, because many people just don't know. They don't know what apartheid was. They don't under they, they people have to understand what the IHRA definition the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition, working definition of anti-Semitism, which includes apartheid um, as a as the accusation of Israel being a racist endeavor. That is squarely in the definition that's accepted by the EU 27, accepted by the English speaking countries and certainly in the United States, accepted by every state in the union. And, and that has to be um, a moral, ethical, intellectual, foundational basis in order to to um, to completely call this out. But how and where? Because the college campuses, which is the place that most people go to get educated or lots do anyway, that that's the problem, not the solution. So how do we bypass the campuses and get to the decent people who just don't know and explain to them that the danger here and the danger here isn't just to the Jews, by the way, the danger here is to everybody. 
you know, to Christians and to, to everybody who feels a little bit out of step with what's happening and is concerned but doesn't know what to do. Yeah, that's that's for sure. Well, what we're seeing is that um, there are many people here who come to the United States who are Arab Muslims, who are Christians, or Ethiopians, and you know, minorities. You know, Israel has. I mean, Israel has a very free, progressive, liberal, open society in Tel Aviv that houses the you know the most comfortable situation for LGBT community in the world in Tel Aviv. And many of, of, and some of them are activists for Israel. We have to, what we need to do is really mobilize uh, what I call non, perhaps non-traditional or minority sector representatives um, of the Jewish people for Israel and to speak to, to, speak to their counterparts into the, into, in, in, in the United States. And, and there are many people here, whether it's Khaled Abutuame or Yosef Haddad, or we have a wonderful, thriving Druze community of men and women yes. who are enormously patriotic, go to the army, love Israel, and are ready to come to U.S. campuses, to U.S. communities, and speak to people. So I, I like this idea of Israel as a Jewish majority character, comma, pluralistic state. We are a pluralistic state. We are, we are you know, we, we have a, a majority Jewish character, but we have thriving minorities here um, mm -hmm. with all of the tensions we have within the Arab communities uh, between them, not only, yeah. not particularly between Jews and Arabs, but within Arabs, we've got a terrible problem oh, in yeah. our Arab communities of violence, of, of mafia activity, of the use of uh, firearms and so on. But having said that, having said that, we have wonderful partners in this country who are um, in the minority communities and who are willing to come and set the record straight. I think that's very important because it's much harder to argue in the United States with Yosef Haddad and with uh, Lorena Khatib um, right. than, it, than it is to argue with Eve Harrow and Dan Diker, right? Because we, we, mm -hmm. you know, we are who we are. We're tainted, yes. Right, we're, we're tainted, right, right, right. So I think, that's, I think that's one approach to get around. And the other approach is really to, to, to um, lever up uh, trips to Israel. I mean, to see the th things the way they really are. We have to get, you know, like 100% yeah. participation. So people come and, and join your and your tours, because I always get well, great reports. Thank you. But no, but they're really, uh, leaving me aside, there is a tremendous importance to coming into Judea and Samaria. A lot of the mainstream trips that are funded um, without giving names, they won't come into Judea and Samaria that for, they say it's for security reasons, which is forget a load of okay because they'll go into other places that are whatever it's just a ridiculous excuse and then you don't connect with the history you don't connect with the people there you don't see what's really happening you don't see the vast tracts of empty land which just show that you know it's, it's not like israel took over everything and threw all the arabs out you see so many arab villages which shows that we're not committing apartheid or genocide i mean the facts just speak for themselves but so many of these organizations, even organizations that are center-right, do not come in for a variety of reasons. And I'm not sitting here speaking as a One Israel Fund representative. I work for One Israel Fund because these are my beliefs, not the other way around. That, um, that this is a major part that's missing in the advocacy movement and in having people really come and learn and understand. But it always comes down to the government's not going to help us. The government can barely keep itself together or can't keep itself together. Private organizations very often veer politically correct, get nervous about whatever it is. 
And we've never really had like a big organization with, you know, the kind of funding that the left seems to have. We don't have that kind of George Soros on our side who's willing to throw it all in and and really do a push to educate people to the truth. And again, it's not just for our sakes. What happens here doesn't stop here. And the enmity and the hatred that's facing Israel, that's just the beginning. You know, it's definitely not the end. But someone asked, yeah. No, I just think we should make one point about contextual, because our our conversation is in context, right? Mm -hmm. The Abraham Peace and Normalization Accords is a very important regional context in which to understand Israel. And I think that you and I, who are witnessed really to history, and Jared Kushner deserves a tremendous amount of credit for the for for the for the great work that he and 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 um, Attorney Greenblatt um, right. did on this uh, uh, on this with the approval of the president, President Trump, right. um, and Avi Berkowitz and others. They they did David tremendous Friedman, amount of right. work, and David and Ambassador Friedman absolutely, and even yeah. my boss, Ambassador Gold. Um, who was an who was an advisor uh, on some of these issues uh, to to the American teams um, from an Israeli point of view? This is really an incredible regional context, yeah. and the fact is that many people don't know that the Palestinian Authority issued a fatwa, an Islamic ruling, prohibiting any official from any one of those four countries: Sudan, Morocco, a the uh, the American the uh, Islamic Emirates, as well as the um, as well as Morocco from praying at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. They're wow. not, they're not, in other words, it's BDS of the Arab world by the Palestinians, <laughs> right? But the good news is that they're looking at Israel as their answer, not right. as their problem. So the Arab-Israeli conflict, as we all knew it in the 1960s, 70s, is essentially over. Um, and it's been Palestinianized into this, into this sort of other type of racialized, um, uh, you know, racialized conflict that has nothing to do with the territorial dispute. And that's why we should really um, we should really note the regional shift that's taken place in Israel in in the Middle East and understand that the Palestinians have isolated themselves. That's the that's the important part. They're not only are they not the center of the Middle East, but they become a footnote in what's happening in the Middle East, especially as um, the Sunni Arab countries in Israel gear up to defend ourselves against uh, the Iranian regime octopus and their nuclearizing assault on the entire region and ultimately the world. But what you're saying about the hybrid warfare is maybe that, if I'm understanding it correctly, maybe the Palestinian issue is the excuse and the hook, you know, to hang it all on. But it goes far beyond that in terms of delegitimizing Israel, making us into an immoral country that has no right to live, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's true. Mm -hmm. But the East has figured it out. The Arab East has figured that out. It's the West that's challenged with that, um, with that right now. It's really amazing. It is definitely a game changer, but I don't think anybody should go to Dubai unless you're also planning on going to Shiloh. All right. If you can, if you can head over there, then you can head over here. No, in all seriousness, it's, uh, it, it's really, it's really something that's lacking. In the last couple of minutes that's remaining, can you tell us a little bit about your dissertation, your PhD dissertation? Sure. How about you want to take questions or, or from the I would. Uh, yeah, I mean, we've got some questions. Somebody asked about Europeans like France and Germany who don't support Israel. You know, is there anything we can do with your when it comes to Europe? We've been, you know, focusing on North America. Um, is there anything to do there or that's just beyond? Well, hope? I think the Germans, I mean, look, under Chancellor Merkel, I mean, uh, you know, yeah, back to Germany. I mean, Chancellor Merkel has really been one of the best European leaders that Israel has uh, has had to de- has dealt with. 
in, in you know, recent years. I mean, Chancellor Merkel has been chancellor for something like 15 years and just stepped down and stepped aside. Um, and, and so I, I think that, you know, she's been a very positive force um, wh when it comes down to Europe. I think the Europeans, the Europeans are willingly blind um, to the, Pal you know, to the Palestinian issue um, being one of hybrid warfare that makes fools of them because they, they basically buy in the Europeans, regrettably, they buy into these um, useless, meaningless buzzwords like OPT, Occupied Palestinian Territory, which has no reality. There's, it, it's not even a term or illegal occupation, doesn't exist as a term of art, but they buy into it for political reasons. And also because during the last five decades, they've been fighting um, their own, when they look in the mirror and they say, oh, we've been, uh, we have been accused of being imperialist and colonialist and, and, and bad behaved actors in Africa and in, you know, and in the third world, in Latin America, um, they have to sort of make up for that by getting on the beat up the Jews and throwing Israel under the bus. That's yeah, how we, that's a, it's a, it's they can very, expiate it's, their it's, own guilt. Yes, it's very it's, it's that's very that's very unfortunate. And I think what I said to uh, Colonel Kemp tonight is I said, would it be appropriate for us in Israel and for Jews in the United States and for friends of Israel, uh, Christians, to have a no tolerance policy for this type of demonization, delegitimization, and defamation of Israel by the Europeans? I mean, you know, when the, when, the, when the Brits and the French start criticizing Israel for our policies without knowing what our policies are, what rights we have in order to advocate and mobilize those policies, and they just sort of get on this, you know, beat up the Jew train, um, I think we should be far less diplomatic and plight with them, reminding them of where they were, um, you know, in the Second World War period and how friendly have they been to Jews in their own country when, when Jews try to defend themselves um, and act, frankly, as a, a real light in terms of our military policy, our, 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 uh, our political policy, all of which is in very strict comportment with our own Supreme Court and international law, um, even though that's been politicized and bastardized um, in the European discussion for their own political limit, uh, limiting reasons. Yeah, and well, we've done a couple of webinars on the fact that the EU is still managing to be mischievous here by funding a lot of the building that the Arabs are, the, the Arabs are doing illegally in, uh, you know, in Area C. So they're managing to get through here. Look, what it comes down to, and I say this with a, a lot of pain, is the Israeli government, whatever it's going to be, to taking a stronger stand. I mean, we can't expect things from other countries that our own government isn't willing to do. Uh, and uh, and I'm really hoping that in the next few weeks, they all pull the, get their acts together and pull it together for the greater good. Because as you said, we are this is a very dangerous time that we're living in. With a, you know, we didn't even mention really Iran or what's happening with the Sunnis or the Saudis or anybody else out there who are watching everyone get distracted and uh, and in the meantime, don't stop for a minute for what they want to accomplish. For so, sure. And uh, by the way, yeah. just. Uh, Here's a little secret. I'll share a little secret with everyone. Please, you know, the, the, just, to, just to show you how the American media always gets it wrong, always gets it wrong. Um, they point to the declaration by um, um, MBS, Saudi Arabia, the crown prince, who said after President Biden had a failed attempt at reconciling uh, with him, not getting what he wanted in terms of oil and not getting what he wanted in terms of normalizing Saudi Saudi's relations with Israel, 
and, and that prompted uh, Muhammad bin Salman to say, no, we will only normalize relations with Israel once there's a, once there's a two-state solution. What's really going on? That was mm -hmm. actually that was actually um, a punishing statement, not to Israel, but to the United States, because it was the United States it was Mr. Biden who wanted to take credit for pushing the Saudis to normalize relations with Israel, while behind the scenes, Israel and the Saudis have already normalized relations far in excess under the radar than right. what Mr. Biden had um, presumably demanded above the radar. But as, as, uh, as American officials had told me when at the end of the Trump administration that the Saudis can only normalize relations with Israel when the Americans give them what they need in terms of backing against Iran. If they don't give them backing against Iran, they can't, they can't come out and be ahead of the United States together with Israel publicly if the world's greatest power is not behind them on what their essential defense needs are and that of the, and the rest of the Gulf. So yeah. that's why they will continue to normalize relations with Israel under the radar, behind the scenes. And believe me, relations are far more normalized than what Mr. Biden would ever admit and the credit that he wanted to take. So the comment about MBS was, um, was basically, you know, a na-na-na-na-na to the United States, not to Israel. Mm -hmm. It was also kind of humiliating watching him beg for uh, for energy when America actually has a lot of its own. So there was a lot of stuff going on here that the long, the, you know, when you live in the Middle East for a long time, you start to understand again, to hark back to Dr. Harold Road, the, the humiliation, the shame, and all those feelings that have nothing to do with what the discourse is, but everything to do with how people react to situations and, uh, and how they're going to play it out. And a lot of lives hanging in the balance on both sides. If people don't understand what's happening and make some mistakes, because some of those mistakes and you can just see them, you know, on the horizon are going to cost a lot of lives. And that's, you know, that's really the fear is can, can we stop this? Can people understand who the players are? By the way, including the stupid Israeli journalist, Gil Tamari, who, kind of, you know, mess things up. I don't know if our listeners are aware of that. It's been all over the news here in Israel, you know, who snuck into Mecca and then and then announced that he was there in an area that only Muslims are supposed to go in. And that was a very damaging thing to do. I mean, it, you have to respect other people's, you may not agree with them, but you have to understand and respect other people's, you know, religious sensitivities. And that was a, that was a damaging thing that he did. Um, it was very I think damaging. So, anyway. as, as a matter of fact, Harold Rowe just just gave an, an hour long lecture on that point. On that. Following his on that point, right. following his breakaway piece, you can see his piece in the JNS. Um, we're yeah. uh, talking about that, and and you know he's a culture expert. Harold's a culture exactly. expert here, and the point is is that you know if, if you understand religious culture of the other, you understand how damaging, as you said, that could be to him personally. As right. well to Israeli Israeli relations with Saudi Arabia, because exactly. if you shame them, you shame them publicly and don't respect their 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 religious you know their religious tradition by by sneaking and peeking. It would be the same thing as somebody you know going up to uh, uh, you know desecrating uh, uh, the Western Wall or going up to Harabite and and doing things that would or not allowing Jews to pray on the Temple Mount, which is something that we need to push to do as well. For the same reason, we shouldn't be humiliated and not allowed to pray 
in a place that's holy to us. So it should go around in, you know, in the same ways and people need to understand that and the importance that it plays in the Middle East. It may not play in such an importance in the, in Europe and in the United States. Like, you know, you, you go to church or you go to synagogue and you go home and you do your own thing. But here, as you said, it is very much a part of the culture. And those sensitivities cannot be ignored, and uh, they really have to be integrated in any of the policies that we set. Okay, Dan, uh, so two minutes on your dissertation, because I'm curious. Pretty cool. Um, the, the, thank you. The dissertation asked the fo- Whoa. The dissertation asked the following questions. Oh, my God. Thank you. <laughs> I, I, I love being 61 and not really understanding how to operate <laughs> <laughs> the Zoom technology, I, the way, you know, my young children. Yes, um, yes. Um, call, so, I call a four-year-old whenever I can't get anything to work. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so, yeah. um, it, look, the research question is, how is it that in anti-Western, um, um, anti-Semitic terror organization like the Palestinian, uh, uh, which is the Palestinian National Movement is represented by the PLO, um, end up becoming the darling of the West 60 years after its founding. And it's really a question because it's unprecedented in, in modern political history to have um, you know, a, an insurgent group or a terror organization like this that was born um, as, as you know, anti, really anti-British, anti-Western, hijackings of, uh, of, of American planes, killings of Americans, including American diplomat Cleo Noel in Sudan in 1972, which was right. which was attributed to Yasser Arafat himself, a Nobel Prize winner. How did you know in in 1994? How is it possible that this organization that is declaratively, rhetorically um, 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 committed to the destruction of the state of Israel and its replacement by what they call Palestine? How did they become the darlings of the Western world? in the first half, in, in the first years of the 21st century? That is the, that is the central question. And the answer, the thesis is that a combination of, um, of a PLO strategy, which is, which is hybrid, strat- hybrid warfare strategy, right. which uses some of the, the, the values, the principles and the strategies and the tactics we discussed in the last hour, combined with and converging with a very sharp turn to the left in, in, in the Western discourse. Um, so that you, you see that some of the values, intersectionality, white supremacy, critical race theory, um, all of these, uh, these, these uh, 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 very far left and even radical positions that, that Edward Said was the, got, was the grandfather of those positions starting in the late 70s, those have caught on. And so basically you have an open door from two sides into which, into which Western um, echelons walked in, the political echelon, diplomatic echelon, the academic echelon, and the Palestinians walked through the other side of the door. And that's how they met. And, and so you, ha- you have what is called identity co-option, identity co-option. It means that according to Soviet and Chinese warfare strategy, you attack the society and you assume their identity. They become the virtuous ones and the Western uh, Western society, or in this case, Israeli society, becomes the denomination of evil, as a former attorney general of Canada, Erwin um, um, uh, Kotler, said following, following the 2001 Durban conference, where, where Israel was basically trotted out as the essence of evil in a UN, the first UN sanctioned uh, conference on human rights, 
and racism after the fall of uh, apartheid South Africa. So you have this inversion in, that's the message I wanna leave with people. You have this inversion, this co-option of identity um, between those that are truly democratic like Israel and the United States and those who are radical and wanna remake those democratic societies in their own revolutionary image. That was the Chinese strategy, that was North Vietnam strategy, General Giap, and that is the PLO strategy. So I'm, that, that, is what, that is what I'm arguing. Okay. Uh, it sounds like you got a lot of good points to make. All right. And that's why we're the new Nazis, right? Israel is the Nazis and they are the Jews. And, but that's, that's the messaging that they give. And it's total, total cooperation. And I'll, I've said this before. I'm going to say it again. We're far from perfect. We're probably just better than everybody else. And that is what's never taken into account. Dan Diker, thank you so much for a really informative webinar. I enjoyed it. I'm sure my listeners did as well. Um, this was recorded and will be sent out within the next day or so to our mailing list and will be available on the One Is A Fun website as well. And you're welcome to share it um, wherever you'd like. And we will hopefully have another webinar, still not decided on, in the next month or so. And uh, join us. Join us on our day trips. Join us in what we do. And be a part of pushing back against these very, very large and frightening forces that are trying to undermine Israel and uh, significantly, especially those of us who live in our biblical homeland. So thank you very much for joining us tonight. Once again, Eve Harrow, Director of Tourism and Community Development for Win Israel Fund, and Dan Diker with all the kudos that are due to him. And uh, from wherever you are, thank you so much for tuning in and take care, everybody. And goodbye. Thanks to Shauna, by the way, the gal behind the scenes. Take care, everyone, and goodbye for now. Zionism, political and secular, says Ben-Gurion, held that Israel must be redeemed by its own efforts and by natural agency, that the Jewish people on its own must create the foundations of a new life. Well, I'm definitely looking to found a new life for my people in the land, although I'm not so sure we can do it on our own. Because I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story. Join Rav Mike Foyer for the best Jewish history podcast, The Jewish Story, on the Land of Israel Network at thelandofisrael.com.